0: Welcome to the Talks on Law MCLE podcast. Interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now, for the interview.
1: Professor, I'd love to talk quickly about duty to retreat. I'm sure we could have a whole sit-down for a whole hour on this topic, but what is the duty to retreat, and and perhaps we could a couple of different examples of states responses to it
0: the first thing to recognize is that there is not a duty to retreat before using non-deadly force no jurisdiction says if somebody's threatening to punch you that you need to run away instead of stopping them by using force against them now that traces back to what's been called the true man doctrine which theorists are often Critical of because it sounds like this very testosterone laden, manly men stand up for themselves kind of view. But other scholars say this actually traces to the view from Sir Matthew Hale that it's about innocent men. So the idea of a true man is an innocent man, and the idea that right should not give way to wrong. So if in fact you're lawfully where you're entitled to be, you shouldn't have to leave that place rather than use at least non-deadly force. So there's no duty to retreat for non-deadly force. And there's also no duty to retreat within your home. So within your castle, the castle doctrine, if somebody attacks you, you do not have to run out of your house. You get to stay and defend yourself. And so that just leaves the question whether or not you need to retreat before using deadly force outside of your home. There, Still, you only have this duty if you can do so with complete safety. So if turning and running away is going to actually make you more vulnerable to attack, you are not required to retreat. But you may not use deadly force if, in fact, you can retreat with complete safety. And then the the thing that, of course, amends that is stand-your-ground laws.
1: So there's no duty to retreat for non-deadly force, There's no duty to retreat in your home. The only place where you have to retreat is before you escalate to deadly force outside the home.
0: Right. That's correct. Assuming that your jurisdiction does not have a stand your ground law, because what the effect of stand your ground is to say you also don't have a duty to retreat before using deadly force.
1: The stand your ground rules seem to have a very strong emotional response, whether you're for or against them. Maybe you could quickly explain what do they actually permit that other states don't?
0: What's important about stand your ground laws is that sometimes we think that it's a complete abandonment of proportionality and necessity. And I think it's important to recognize that that's wrong. So it is still true that if someone comes at me with a knife and I have the opportunity to either punch them or shoot them, that stand your ground jurisdictions will require me to punch them. I'm not allowed to use force that isn't necessary. I'm also not allowed to use force that is disproportionate. So if someone comes at me to punch me, I am not allowed to stand my ground and use deadly force. So we still have proportionality and necessity at work, except for the fact that we remove the requirement that defendants are required to run away if they can retreat with complete safety. And one thing that I pursued in my work is that in many ways that makes citizens quite like law enforcement, because law enforcement is also governed by proportionality and necessity requirements. But law enforcement does not have to retreat. And although we now value de-escalation in, in many different ways in policing, you can also understand why you wouldn't want police to run away when faced with culpable assailants, that you would want them to be able to stand their ground. And that's effectively what we're doing is we're turning citizens into law enforcement with our stand your ground provisions.
1: Yeah, and I imagine people would have varying opinions of whether or not that is wise or appropriate.
0: I think that's exactly right. One thing that we're starting to recognize that we haven't recognized before is that every state has citizens arrest laws. And the impact of citizens arrest laws are extremely broad compared to Stand Your Ground. So Stand Your Ground is actually more rhetorical because it's practically redundant with many of the ways that citizens are already entitled to use force in many jurisdictions. They are already allowed to go out in the name of the state and use force against their fellow citizens. In some jurisdictions, that's going to include deadly force. And they can use force in response to everything from felonies to misdemeanors to, in some jurisdictions, breaching the peace. One case held that breaching the peace was when the person who was ultimately arrested cursed at the defendant. And the argument was that when you curse at someone, that is breaching the peace, and therefore the defendant acted appropriately in executing a citizen's arrest. So we actually have these incredibly broad laws on our books that are allowing citizens not just to stand their ground when they're defending themselves, but to actually go on the offense and arrest and use force in the name of the state. And I actually think we should be more focused on that
1: This seems incredibly difficult for, you know, running the math in your head. If you have a right to defend yourself, someone else has some perceived or real right to use force against you as a temporary officer. I can imagine those coming into tension, especially if someone is confused or overly vigilant.
0: This is a nightmare on the ground, right? Because you're going to have the possibility for so many mistakes. One person thinks that what they're doing is a completely legitimate citizen's watch. The other person thinks that what they're doing is being stalked and attacked. Where we go with this when we're authorizing citizens to do more than say, you're attacking me with unlawful force, but I'm actually allowed to proactively come to the problem, proactively seek it out because I'm allowed to then enforce the law in the state's name, it's going to create tremendous ambiguity for for the average citizen to figure out what they're permitted to do, what they're not permitted to do, and what they're actually responding to.
1: And a case that shows this that has captivated the country in recent times is the Ahmed Aubrey case. Perhaps we could use that as a, as an example to talk through self-defense in the face of citizen's arrest
0: absolutely so when uh travis mcmichael and his father and neighbor see someone and they then decide right they see Ahmad arbery running and they then decide that they are going to execute a citizen's arrest now their account was that there had been previous felonies in the neighborhood, although that was disputed by the prosecution because uh, many of these alleged crimes had never been reported. But their claim, of course, is we're going to act in the name of the state, we were going to arrest him, and therefore we were using lawful force so that when Arbery sees these men pointing guns at him. It's not, they say, unlawful force. They're not the initial aggressors, is their claim, because they are legitimately entitled to engage in this behavior. Now, it turns out the judge ruled that that's not what Georgia law says, that in fact, they were not engaged in a legitimate citizen's arrest. Of course, this went to the jury to decide, but it ultimately turned on the question of what the citizen's arrest provision permitted. And the judge said that it had to be a felony that was committed uh, within their presence or their knowledge. So it couldn't be something where they suspected someone had committed a crime, where they had probable cause to believe that, which would have been its own jury question. They actually had to witness a crime and the, the victim committing it in order for them to be executing an appropriate citizen's arrest.
1: And that was because they used deadly force or or in general for citizen's arrest under the Georgia law?
0: For any use of force, it had to be within the pres- their presence under then existing Georgia law.
1: And you point out then existing after the um- Aubrey case, Georgia went, uh, the Georgia legislature repealed that law.
0: That's exactly right. So now in Georgia, police officers who are outside their jurisdiction can sometimes use uh, force, despite the fact that they're technically not police officers at that moment. They're not acting as lawful police officers. And in very limited situations, private citizens can use force when it's, a Target or a Walmart and they see somebody committing theft or a restaurant and somebody's running out without having paid the bill, they're allowed to use non dele force essentially to stop the person and detain the person. But they have to call the cops and they're only allowed to keep them for an hour.
1: So there still is a limited citizen's arrest provision under Georgia law, but not the law that was in place at the time of the killing of Ahmed Aubrey.
0: That's exactly right. And citizens' arrest laws can be just extraordinarily broad because we're talking about the question of whether somebody is entitled to a criminal defense and we're not talking about the Constitution. Citizens can use more force than is constitutionally permissible. So in Florida, you can shoot a fleeing felon in the back if it's necessary under a citizen's arrest law, even though you're not allowed to do that as a matter of, uh, policing and uh, constitutional law.
1: If if I see someone in Florida uh, break into my house and steal a, a twenty dollar portable speaker, and they're running away, I could be justified, or I could be, I wouldn't be prosecuted for killing them.
0: So potentially, depending on a, a, exactly how they're going to construe the burglary uh, statute and whether that's going to count as the kind of felony, absolutely, when you use not when you use deadly force and you say stop, I'm arresting you, and the person keeps running, you are executing a citizen's arrest, and therefore you would not be guilty. Wow. The the way that the common law had been trying to rein this in, the way that states had been trying to rein this in, is exactly what happened in the McMichael case, which is they said, citizens, we may be authorizing you to do this, but you do this at your peril in that it actually has to have been a crime that you saw. And in many jurisdictions, you have to have gotten the right person. So unlike police officers who have probable cause, if you get it wrong, you lose the defense. So in Georgia, the question wasn't whether or not Arbery actually had committed a crime. And there didn't seem to be evidence that he had committed the kind of felony that would have justified the use of force. But if, in fact, you're wrong on that, whether he committed the crime, whether there was a crime or whether he committed it, then in Georgia, you absolutely lose the defense.
1: Let's talk about another controversial self-defense case, and that's the case involving Kyle Rittenhouse. In this case, there was some outcry that he was not found guilty because was he playing part of the problem by showing up at a crowded and emotionally charged rally with a very large weapon?
0: Right. So you start with the sort of traditional question. Did he reasonably believe that he was facing an imminent threat of death or serious bodily injury? And then you ask, well, should I modify this? Because in some sense, he's a provocateur, right? He has come to the problem. He has seemed completely reckless as to the problem. Is he in some ways, you know, starting it? So Wisconsin has two provisions. In terms of deadly force, you only forfeit your right to deadly force off the bat if you have intentionally provoked the use of deadly force against you so that you'd have a reason to use deadly force against the person attacking you. And it doesn't seem as though there's a lot of evidence that he was absolutely looking to shoot someone that day and was intentionally provoking Rosenbaum in an effort therefore to be able to kill him. So then You look at how the sort of non-deadly force structure works, which is you can forfeit the right to non-deadly force if you more generally know that you're provoking people, which you could argue he did. But if the person responds with deadly force, you regain your defensive right if you retreat. So even though generally in Wisconsin there may be stand your ground laws, the way that this functioned was, well, there's self-defense. Well, he loses it because he's the provocateur. He doesn't lose it as the provocateur because you only lose it as to non-deadly force and he retreated to the utmost and therefore he's allowed to use deadly force. And where that then leaves you is with that same initial jury question, which is, did he reasonably believe he was facing an imminent threat of unlawful force. And one thing that's crucial here is to recognize that every state in the United States places the burden on the state to disprove self-defense beyond a reasonable doubt. So he didn't have to convince the jury by preponderance of the evidence that he reasonably believed it. Instead, the state had to convince the jury beyond a reasonable doubt that the elements of self-defense were
1: not met. You also mentioned earlier that the provocateur provision, I suppose, is actually quite difficult to show. And I imagine it would be even more difficult now with states' robust gun protection laws or gun-carrying laws. It may be, in fact, difficult to show that carrying a gun would be provocation under any circumstance.
0: So that's absolutely right. So one thing that I would love to see states do and that one thing I've written on is that provocation should be broadened so that it's a recklessness standard. So instead of asking the question, did you intentionally provoke deadly force against you? It should be, did you consciously disregard the substantial and unjustifiable risk? that you are provoking force against you. So you'd lose non-deadly for provoking non-deadly, you'd lose deadly force, the right to use deadly force for provoking deadly force. But even that test is going to have the question about, well, when are you behaving unjustifiably? And that's gonna lead us to questions like, well, what are you allowed to do? Are you allowed to carry a gun? Are you allowed to engage in citizen's arrest? Because if you're allowed to do those things, then it doesn't count as impermissible provocation.
1: Certainly carrying a a weapon of the power and capability that we're talking about in this case certainly escalates things quickly, both in terms of perceived threat to others and the perceived threat to the individual as well because the fact that he's carrying a gun may make him a target.
0: That's absolutely right. Other people are going to see it. They're going to be nervous. And then you get claims like Rittenhouse's that Rosenbaum was reaching for my gun. And so you brought the very weapon that you're now claiming you needed to use to prevent it from being used against you. And that's ultimately going to turn on how we think, when we think people are allowed to carry weapons in public and given the risk that in fact they can be used against their owners.
1: Whether or not, you think the law should be updated in Wisconsin or whether or not Kyle Rittenhouse may have broken certain rules or laws in transporting the gun. Do you think the jury got the self-defense question correct?
0: I think it's very hard to say whether the jury got the self-defense question right or wrong. I think that it was absolutely a jury question. And I think given the burden of proof, I don't think that we can condemn this jury verdict as wholly outside the facts, right? Crucially, the state has to disprove self-defense beyond a reasonable doubt. So the jury has the question, did Kyle Rittenhouse reasonably believe that Rosenbaum was going to kill him? He was running, he was reaching in that direction. And so if you, stop thinking about how much sort of Kyle Rittenhouse created this situation and imagine just some wholly innocent person plopped down in that situation and what would have been in his head at that moment. And then again, remember the state has to disprove self-defense beyond a reasonable doubt. Then There's got to be space for jury verdicts on each side. I think that if the jury had convicted, there would have been room for them to do that. And there was room for them to acquit here.
1: Let's look at another, perhaps notorious, at least controversial example of self-defense. What happened in the case involving George Zimmerman?
0: So in the Zimmerman case, Zimmerman was part of a citizen's watch and he noticed Trayvon Martin walking around and decided that in the wake of previous crimes in the neighborhood, that he was going to decide that Martin was suspicious, right? And there was nothing that Martin did. There was, there was no crime committed by Trayvon Martin.
1: He was walking home with a bag of Skittles or, or something like that. With
0: a hoodie on. That's exactly right. And Zimmerman did call the police. And the police specifically told Zimmerman to stop pursuing Martin and to leave it that the police were on their way. Nevertheless, he continued to pursue Martin. And at some point, according to Zimmerman, and of course, Zimmerman's story is the only one we have, right? Trayvon Martin decided to turn on him and uh, there was a physical altercation. And at some point in time, Zimmerman claims that he feared for his life, that Trayvon Martin was on top of him, punching him, pushing his head into the concrete, putting his hand over his mouth and potentially going to kill him. And it was therefore that Zimmerman reached for his gun and killed Trayvon Martin. And there are some really important takeaways to this case. I mean, the first is that it was often spoken of as a stand your ground case. And it's not a stand your ground case because at the moment that Zimmerman used deadly force, there was no question that on his theory, or on his argument, he couldn't safely retreat. So this isn't a case where he could have used something else or or run away, that's not the problem. The problem is again, that someone seems to be picking a fight. And the question then becomes, should there have been a provocation instruction, a provocateur initial aggressor instruction, that Zimmerman lost his right to self-defense, because he essentially started this fight by stalking Trayvon Martin. Now, the way that the defense presented Florida law to the judge was, look, this is gonna be reversible error under our jurisprudence. There has to be a threat of force or, or, or there has to be force or a threat of force. So really an initial aggressor kind of question, not a provocateur question. And the judge said, you're right, just walking behind someone isn't a threat of force. Now, one thing to say is the judge maybe gets that wrong because the question is, did Trayvon Martin perceive that to be a threat of force? But the other thing to recognize again is that separate and apart from being an initial aggressor, you can provoke the fight without being the first to attack. So the question is, what business did Zimmerman have engaging in this behavior where he was essentially stalking Trayvon Martin, chasing him down at that time. And if he's the one who provoked it, then he should lose defensive rights. Now, of course, the one wrinkle to that is if we adopted the Furzan view that let's look at this as recklessness, did Zimmerman consciously disregard the substantial and unjustifiable risk, right, that he was starting the fight, that he was starting an affray or a deadly affray? Zimmerman would then respond, well, I'm part of a neighborhood watch. I'm engaging in the same kind of citizens arrest behavior that we're seeing all over the place. And that's why it's so crucial that we limit citizens arrest because for so long as citizens are allowed to go on the offense, then they no longer are forfeiting their defensive rights when they behave the way Zimmerman did. Now Zimmerman was told, stay in the car. So he should have lost his defensive rights. He shouldn't have thought he could continue to go after Martin. But we are creating tremendous ambiguity here when we have stopped telling citizens to act in self-defense and told citizens that they're allowed to proactively search out criminals.
1: Quick break for our code The code for this interview is 072516. Again, that's 072516, and now back to the interview. And before we leave that case, what what did the jury determine or how was it resolved?
0: So he was found not guilty.
1: And partly because there was no alternative side to the story because Trayvon Martin wasn't there.
0: So that is certainly a problem with any use of deadly force that results in a death, is that we're only going to get one side of the story. I mean, interestingly, if we reformed our laws in particular ways, we might think even just looking at George Zimmerman's statement to the police officers, you could get everything you needed about how he actually forfeited his rights by following Trayvon Martin in the way that he did and pursuing him even after having been told not to. Of course, if the laws were to change, defendants might likewise wise up to what they should and shouldn't confess to originally.
1: Well, Professor, to play devil's advocate, there's a difference between following prudent advice, you know, go home, stop following this person, and doing something that's perhaps imprudent, but not illegal. In public, I can walk around and follow someone to make sure they're not committing a crime.
0: So it's always going to be a factual question, right? At what point in time do you recognize that you are potentially getting someone very upset in ways that would cause them to respond defensively? So it's one thing for you to keep a reasonable distance and be curious what is that person with the funky briefcase doing? I, you know, I want to see, uh, and quite another to be actively pursuing someone else, and really then potentially causing them fear, potentially getting them very upset. We're not permitted to do those kinds of things with other people, and if we do that, recognizing those kinds of impacts, why shouldn't we then lose our defensive rights when we when we get the very risk? we're aware we're creating. And I'm not saying you should, you should lose rights when you're unaware of it. I wouldn't even have people forfeit rights when they're unreasonably unaware of it. But when, when you recognize this is exactly a kind of risk I'm creating, then you should lose your rights in the same way that you don't poke bears or hit beehives with baseball bats, right?
1: I'm just, in my mind, you could do something silly or you could do something risky where you end up getting someone else killed where it still wouldn't be murder, but it would be some type of a crime, perhaps a negligent homicide or, or manslaughter.
0: So a, a lot of work gets done with the what's the risk that the person is aware they're creating, right? So, so that's the first thing, which is you actually have to recognize I'm consciously disregarding this risk that I am going to provoke someone to use force against me. And then the second part of it is that that behavior has to be unjustified. So there there may be times when you think, I really want to hold a surprise party for my best friend, and gosh, there's some chance that he's gonna completely panic over the, you know, when the lights go on and everybody screams, but it's potentially justified by the fact that, look, we're good friends, and actually he would want this kind of party, even though there's some risk that he'll, you know, react with force, right? So there's room to to make sure that we're not having people forfeit rights unless they're really aware of the risks they create and the risk they create is absolutely unjustified, right? Otherwise, this view would say things like, if you walk through Central Park in the middle of the night, you know you're running the risk of being attacked. I'm absolutely not saying that. Right. Because, of course, you are justified. Your strong liberty interest in being able to go where you want to go allows you to walk through the park at night. But I think it's a very different question when you're actively pursuing someone, whether or not you have that right to actively pursue when you're claiming that your right to do that is in the name of the state and the state has already told you, stay in your car.
1: Kimberly Ferzan is a professor of law at the University of Pennsylvania. Kim It has been a real pleasure. Thanks for the time today.
0: Thanks so much, Joel. It's been great to talk to you about this.
1: As a postscript, we have one update and one correction. Let's start with a correction. Here we're going to look at the Zimmerman case, the trial against George Zimmerman for the killing of Trayvon Martin. In that case, we described a certain series of events where George Zimmerman was following Trayvon Martin, where he perceived Trayvon Martin as a threat, perhaps preparing to commit some type of criminal act or perhaps just having committed some criminal act. And as a result, he was pursuing Trayvon Martin. As we described in the conversation earlier, Zimmerman called that into the police. He was part of a night watch. He called it into the police and, as we described, was told to stop following. Trayvon Martin. That actually isn't correct, so we wanted to correct that for you. After reviewing the transcripts in the Trayvon Martin case, George Zimmerman was told he did not need to keep following Trayvon Martin. Quite a distinction, and we wanted to get that corrected right away. The second point is an update, and this is in the case of the killing of Ahmed Arbery. We mentioned how travis mcmichael used a self-defense claim and used a citizen's arrest claim in the state case the citizens arrest claim was dismissed as the law wasn't met as the letter of law wasn't met since mcmichael had not actually seen a crime being committed in the subsequent federal case against Travis McMichael, he used a self-defense claim again. This one was a bit similar to what we saw in the Rittenhouse case, actually, where Kyle Rittenhouse was fleeing from individuals who were attempting to, to stop him, to take away his gun, and at that point he fired on one of those individuals. Here in the McMichael case, Travis McMichael's attorney used a similar argument, arguing that he did not shoot Ahmed Arbery out of racial malice, but as out of self defense when Ahmed Arbery grabbed for Travis McMichael's gun. Ultimately, he was not successful in that argument, and the jury was not persuaded, but you can see how the tension there could in some cases lead to a killing being deemed valid as we saw in the written house case so an update a correction and as always thanks for watching talks on law
0: for more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law visit talksonlaw.com if you're earning mcle for this interview you can enter your confirmation code at talksonlaw.com/podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the Talks On Law MCLE podcast.